This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat in Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 621 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. My name is Matt Baum, and I will be your head number one for the duration. And I am the internet's Joe Patrick, your head number two. Today on the show, we're back to the dirty business of reviewing new comics. Then it's up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to talk about our must-read picks for next Wednesday. Finally, we'll give you a taste of our Patreon TLDR segment, where this time we're breaking down Marvel's Venom-centric King in Black event, complete with discussion, explanation, and annotation. But first, it's review time in the ziggurat. I don't think we did any annotating. Sure we did. We mentioned but, some, we mentioned books the stuff came from and stuff like that. And okay, that's sure. That's annotation. <laughs> Today's pile is full of corporate ex-flunkies, old-ass FF teams, even older hulks, and hard-working time travelers. As usual, our first two reviews come from last week, and the second two from this week, Matt. Let's kick this pig, shall we? We shall! And we'll start with House of Lost Horizons, number one from Dark Horse. Here's your creative team. It was written by Chris Roberson, with art by Leela Del Duca. Mignola and Roberson's detective Sarah Jewell returns along with her badass associate Marie Therese to investigate a closed room murder on an island besieged by a storm with a cast of suspicious characters and an occult mystery that will certainly lead to more deaths before the mystery is solved. It's all there. What more can you ask for? Think classic Poirot or Sherlock Holmes mysteries set in 1926 in the States with a hint of creepy occult magic. And you've got the idea. Sarah proves you don't need a half-naked, poorly proportioned porn model to make a heroine interesting and intelligent. Her relationship with Mary Therese seems like a genuine friendship beyond their jobs as detectives, and it makes both characters even more likable. Roberson hits all the beats here of a locked door mystery, complete with a cast that all look completely guilty, or way too comfortable knowing there is a dead body in the house. Del Duca's art is perfect for the time period and at times has this sort of pop art look that reminds me of Charles Burns' work on books like Black Hole. Roberson's script is great for what is essentially a lot of talking heads setting up a whodunit. I'm giving this mm -hmm. a buy it. Yeah, I thought this was wonderful, but I am also a sucker for this sort of Agatha Christie style eccentric characters in a in a in a locked house kind of thing uh and i just now realized that i've been confusing up until this point i have been confusing Layla del duca with vanessa del rey who is a totally different kind of artist 100 percent different absolutely <laughs> and i'm ashamed that i'm such a pig that i named two male detectives and forgot about agatha christie <laughs> agatha on. christie's not a detective she's a writer yeah, but she wrote uh, detective stories and mysteries and whatnot. Yes, but I mean, she's not the name of a character. Yeah. Uh, Miss Marple is a she, detective. She a solved detective. The, the murder on the Orient Express, didn't she? When she throws that mama off in the end or something like that. She's the writer, Matt. That What? Joe. No, that, yes. Billy Crystal was there. 
he couldn't stand the mom. Yeah, I, I can understand why you might be confused. Uh, that is, of course, the classic Agatha Christie tale, Throw Mama from the Train. Yes, starring the mom from Goonies as Agatha Christie, as I recall. But, yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. yes. She plays her. Pretty herself, sure I'm right in, about in, this. In an, <laughs> in an odd twist, she plays Agatha Christie, the author of the story. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a total sucker for this kind of like locked room, locked house, uh, you know, clue esque, uh, eccentric people that all that all uh seem fishy kind of oh, detective yeah. story i love it i love it i love it gotta love it uh you add in you add in a, a a a ghost a ghosty element and i'm all in this was a huge buy it uh i do apologize to vanessa del rey i'm not sure why i thought that she was layla del duca nope sorry i did it again i got it yeah, backwards wow i apologize to <laughs> layla del duca <laughs> I'm not sure why I thought she was Scarlet Witch artist Vanessa Del Rey, uh, but yes, this book uh, I think is you're totally of fun. Lana Del beautiful Rey, art, huge buy it. Lana Del Rey, the girl that sings like she's asleep and draws the Scarlet Witch. That's who you're. Yeah, thinking. Royals, Royals. I'm gonna draw the Scarlet Witch. That's yeah. Yeah, that's, Lana uh, Del Rey didn't sing Royals. <laughs> that was somebody else. <laughs> Lana Del Rey. Yeah, she was the. Oh, that was Lord. She was that girl. Carly Rae Jepsen? Nope. Carly Rae's actually talented, <laughs> matter of fact. But we'll deal with three named fe white females later on. Right uh, now. Taylor Hortense Swift? Is it's time to move on to our next. <laughs> I think um, it's Taylor Pubert Swift. Pubert. <laughs> yes. Perptato. Per yeah. Taylor Perptato Swift. Taylor Perptato Swift. All right, my first review goes to scroll, scroll, scroll. X Corp. Number one from Marvel. It's a brave new world for the mutants of the Marvel universe, and they need to adapt accordingly. Enter X Corp, the Krakoan business division tasked with overseeing the nation's worldwide business interests. The choice of Warren Worthington III and Monet St. Croix, a.k.a. Archangel and M slash Penance as co-CXOs is a no-brainer. I don't remember what the X stands for, but I'm sure it makes no sense whatsoever. Chief uh, officer, right? Is that something like that? <laughs> it's the chief X officer. Yeah, the according chief to you, it's chief X officer, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and I absolutely love Multiple Man. So I was really happy to see Jamie Madrox as part of the main cast. I think the way that they've been using his abilities to basically run their uh you know fancy flower production facility single-handedly is super interesting as well well he better be getting paid like 200 times though because that's bullshit <laughs> you know when they're like congratulations you've been promoted joe and now you have three jobs but you're only being paid for one i yep. see yep. what you're it's doing true. there it's true i mean he gets to live forever so i mean Ooh, gets he could be off. his own union though or he only has to pay union dues once. I think I just wrote the second storyline for this, actually. Jamie Madrox <laughs> unionizes. I don't really know anything about uh, Trinary. That was her name, right? Trinary? Yeah. But her role as, as sort of a, a, a modern-day Robin Hood hacktivist is fun. Uh, basically, X-Corp is who you want running things. When you deal in a world of evil mutant robot horse racing billionaires. I thought the art by Alberto Foce was perfectly serviceable. It didn't really blow me away. It's, it's very, 
again, I, I don't want to downplay it because it is, it is good. It's well done. It's just, there's nothing super exciting about it. Yeah. It was, it was fine. I mean, not bad by any means. It was fine. Yeah. It's just, it's very, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. like, Hey, this is competent. Yeah. But you know, it almost feels like, it almost feels like an insult to say, well, I thought it was good art, but it wasn't very interesting to look at. Well, when I get to my review, I'm going to say that I thought the art was a little dull, quite honestly. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little dull. It's not bad. We're reviewing comics here. We don't need to pile on, but it is what it is. Yeah. There's nothing offensive about it, but I did find it a little dull. And with this kind of, you had this sort of a lot of corporate jargon being thrown around yeah, here and there. It's already. Yeah. It already. It, just by, just by virtue of its concept, it's already going to be yes. a lot of people in suits talking. Mm-hmm. Can feel like a board meeting after a while. <laughs> right. <laughs> you and know, so I think maybe the art needed to be a little bit zhuzhier. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the cover though, by David Aja is stunning, which was kind of a theme for me this week was comics. I picked that just accidentally had the most breathtaking covers. Yeah. X-Corp number one is a great addition to Marvel's latest run of weirdo X titles. I'm definitely looking forward to more of it. I'm giving it a buy it. I love X-Corp. So Trinary, first appearance, X-Men Red, which we didn't pay a whole lot of attention to. So there you go. Um, I That was the uh, Tom Taylor book, right? Yes. The Tom Taylor X-Men book. Not too long ago on Twitter, and I can't remember who it was. It may have been Quixotic Comics. It was a comic book store, though, but they posted, are you tired of comics that have amazing cover art and sort of meh interior art? And I was like, no, whatever, man. It happens. And then I read this book, and I went, you know what? I am tired of that because this cover is gorgeous. And I thought the art was a little dull. And quite honestly, this is a smart comic book, and I like the idea of X-Corp, but I got a little bored while I was reading it. And I'm not saying like it's bad. I'm giving it a skim it. I can't give it a strong buy it because I can't say I was really excited about anything that happened here. And it feels like so far, obviously the wheels will come off the wagon. They have to, otherwise there's no action. But right now they just kind of got everything clicking and here's how we go. And it just felt like a day at X work. And okay. I mean, yeah. Fine. And, and you know, that's going to be, your mileage is really going to vary on this one. Yeah. And I, I think because- if like for art, me, for me, the concept is what carried it, but we both have the same opinion about the art. Right. And my problem is I think if the art was a little snappier or a little more interesting, I think it would have pulled the story along better. And it just didn't. I thought it was kind of yeah. dull. I'm giving this a skim it. Fair. 100% fair. My next review from last week is Time Before Time, number one from Image. It's written by Declan Shalvey and Rory McConville with art by Joe Palmer. The future sucks. It sucks bad, like so bad, rich people are paying rogue time-traveling syndicates to take them back in time while others request items from the future. I kind of feel like, and I don't know for certain, but it seems like people can't be taken to the future, but items can be brought back from the future. You know what I mean? Did you get that same feeling? Uh, yeah, kind of. Because we saw people going back in time, but they only mentioned stuff coming back from the future. So I have a feeling we'll explore that later. Time travel is also very hard on your body thanks to exposure to radiation and sooner or later, it's probably going to kill you. Since it's criminals doing all the time traveling here, they're mainly ferrying other criminals or desperate victims to different past years. So when two time travel guides trapped by the system they work in decide to steal a pod and disappear in time, what could possibly go wrong? I said time a lot. Declan, you did, yes. 
Declan Shalvey is a beloved artist here in the Ziggurat, but only recently he's made the jump to writer. Joe and I both didn't fall in love with his recent Immortal Hulk flatline one-shot, but it wasn't due to his art. He has backup here with McConville on the script, and I gotta say, it was much better than the Hulk book we read. That is not to say that Hulk book was terrible. If you revisit our reviews, we gave it a skim it. We just thought the plot seemed a little predictable and kind of thin. The premise here is very solid, though. It's sci-fi meets daily grind of a criminal looking for a way out type story. Palmer's art style has a very simple line, very Gabriel Ba style that gives it a nice, gritty, realistic feel to the crappy looking future. And Chris O'Halloran's limited and muted color palette works really well with Palmer's style. This is a great setup for a solid sci-fi crime plot that would probably make a pretty compelling TV show too. I'm giving this a buy it. It feels like the sci-fi or perhaps Cinemax HBO Max tryout book, you know? Well, I mean, sure, but that, I mean, come on. Any, 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 anything now kind of seems like it, it could be, you know, it, it, that doesn't mean anybody's like writing it no, for that purpose. I'm not saying that it, it just is. means like, hey, this would make a great show. I'm just saying there's certain things that you could see. Not only this would make a great show, but a story like this could be executed as a show a lot easier than a lot of other type stories. Than the one with the space horses. Exactly. Like the, like the space horse that killed <laughs> We're my dad. We're going to talk about a little bit here. Yeah. Uh, my dad is alive and well, by the way. That was just a joke. And they're dragons. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I thought this was a ton of fun. And uh, for me, uh, kind of the opposite of the feeling that you had with uh, X-Corp, I thought that the art really elevated this book. Yeah, definitely. David Aja came up, uh, and I thought that this looked, this reminded me a lot of David Aja in terms of like for sure the minimal line style yeah, uh, the sure. the yeah. the color style the actual art style is uh, much cartoonier you know much more exaggerated but i thought yeah it was it was really excellent uh, i i thought it was a beautiful looking comic um he does a lot of like kind of like fisheye perspective stuff uh throughout the book that i thought was super fun uh, and, uh, yeah, this was great. It's a buy it for me. It's a, it's a fun idea. It's a well-designed book, beautiful art. Great job. My first book from, oh no, I'm this sorry. Is still this was also week. from last week yeah. for me. Justice League last ride. Number one from DC. Marvel stalwart Chip Zdarsky jumps to DC for his first long form story featuring a non-continuity tale of the publisher's premier super team. Zdarsky's story basically takes a greatest hits approach that features an evergreen list of familiar characters and locales. Uh, it reminded me a lot of the sort of story that you'd see during DC's animated heyday, right? Like you'd, you'd, you'd watch Batman uh, or Superman or Justice League and you'd be like, yes, this is a distillation of what DC is. Yeah, for sure. Without any like specific like, oh man, can you believe that Superman has a kid now? Like they didn't touch on any of that. Like no continuity stuff. But Zdarsky's story quickly veers into a darker direction as we learn that a tragic series of events has driven the league apart. The team is reuniting at the Watchtower for the first time since things went bad, and they are not okay. Despite this detachment from DC continuity, Zdarsky's league still feels familiar and true to character. The mystery the writer introduces here is compelling enough to draw me back for future issues. Miguel Mendoza 
is a name I'm unfamiliar with. Yeah, I've never heard he of this delivers, guy. Yeah, he delivers some solid uh, iconic art here. Uh, uh, iconic meaning that like you look at it and it's like, this is Superman. This is Batman. Like there's no weird stylistic nonsense. Uh, there are a couple of odd moments of perspective here and there, most notably in the scene where the Flash rushes away from an awkward situation. But overall, I thought the artwork was really strong. Last Ride isn't really what I was expecting when I heard that Chip Zdarsky was going to do a Justice League story, but the excellent work from the creative team has me hooked. I'm giving this a buy it. The continuity wonk in me got a little like, eh, come on, man. We, we got Black Label, we got regular DC, and now we have this. Which, was this originally supposed to be digital first, and then they decided, no, we're putting it in comic shops? Or am I making that up? Uh, you might be right about that. I feel like we've talked I, I, about I that. think I read something about DC reversing a decision to yeah. make a book digital I feel first, like we and I think it might have been this book. And so, at first, I was just kind of like, I mean, at least just spell it out. Give me a little something like, in the, you know, it's the year or whatever, or this is different, or something along those lines. It didn't throw me off that bad but that's just thing that's just it though if you're a continuity wonk you know that right away right i suppose uh now i don't think some of the problems you had the art were necessarily so much the artist i think there's some really heavy digital effects here like with the flash especially there are some other digital effects in here that were kind of heavy too but the story is cool it, it, it's a good enough story and zadarsky comes in I, I admit i have this other knee-jerk reaction where writers want to write the justice league fighting because they think it's interesting. And a lot of times it doesn't work out. And I go, just knock it off. I'm not saying they need to be making out the whole time, but Zdarsky does a really good job of giving them. We a reason. all know what you want. You pervert. <laughs> Zdarsky does a really good job of giving them a reason to be upset with each other that we gently find out about as the book goes on. And it is very believable and it works and it humanizes them really well. And it's something we haven't seen in DC for a while other than going to the extreme of now the justice league are going to murder each other, <laughs> which I really don't need, but this was fun. It's a fun story. And you're right. It doesn't really matter. Where it takes place. Yeah. Like they're not, they're not, they're not like fighting, fighting. They're arguing, but there was a thing that happened and they separated because of it and haven't been like together for a long time. And now they're back together for what kind of seems like a, a Hal Parent trap type thing. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but no, I like this. It, it was really fun. And I thought Zdarsky brought a really good voice to all these characters. And it's a very human voice we haven't had for a long time with Justice League. Giving it a buy. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. Moving on to this week, we begin with Rangers of the Divide. Number one from Dark Horse. It says, written and drawn by Megan Huang. For the ever-warring nations of Vale and Rillian, there is but one factor that unites them. The ancient military order known as the Rangers of the Divide. Inducted as children, these fearsome warriors are a neutral entity acting as peacekeepers and protectors who patrol the wild borders between the nations. Only during times of crisis are the Rangers authorized to leave their post. And now, a mysterious new threat looms. So that's the foreword of the book. And while it sets up the story a bit, <laughs> the script spends the rest of its time talking about the looming threat without ever actually mentioning what that threat is. We meet It's a looming, Matt. It's looming. I mean, I got that part. Trust me. We meet a seasoned ranger know? that is set to retrieve some young, inexperienced rangers who ride dragons that look like Pokemon designs and talk like anime characters. The art is really good at times, but it's a little inconsistent with some faces, and occasionally the action got a little weird and hard to follow. 
Now, I like being dropped into the action and often talk about writers spending too much time setting up the world, but there was so much weird anime fantasy that I could have used a little more primer here, maybe just an and possibly just a mention of what the characters are going to be facing, because it certainly felt like the characters knew and they were keeping it a secret from the reader. <laughs> like, there's even a part where they're like, are you crazy? This is like an extinction level event. I'm like, OK, what are we talking about? <laughs> Anybody want to tell me the reader? Uh, so I'll come back. I'm giving it a skim. Point, <laughs> point of Point of order, sir. I think the record will reflect that you have complained about being dropped into the deep end of a story on a number of occasions. Well, when it's too deep, sure. But uh -huh. also at the same time, it's like, I don't want to, you don't need to spell everything out. Here, I needed a little bit. I needed a little bit of spelling out. Yeah, I, I don't love the art. Uh, all of these people have tails, which um, weirds me out. Well, uh, this is not Avatar, sir. But are they robot tails? Because they look like they're kind of metal and segmented. Maybe they look they look metal or uh, I, I could I don't See, know, man. And again, like tell. one line, they're, if you're not, but if, they're moving them around. If you're not going to do something like spell up the Rangers wear this outfit with a metal tail, just have one line. We're like control that metal yeah. tail of yours private. I'm like, sorry, I'm still getting used to it. It's brand new. You know, like, got it. All right. There we go. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's know, like, little uh, things like that. Yes. Yeah. It, I, I didn't really love this. It wasn't my cup of tea. I, um, the art is fine. I, I don't really care for the style of the art. It's it's got it's it's anime adjacent, but yeah. You know, it doesn't really commit in either direction. I thought there were elements um, of it that were really good. And then other parts that were just, I was like, wait a minute, what's going on? Like, there's a scene where one of the characters is doing one arm push-ups, But the way that's drawn, it looks like she's laying on her face down with an arm behind yeah. her back. And I was like, what's going on there? <laughs> well, like, I'm looking at that panel right now. And she's got a shadow underneath her butt. Like, it's all the, all the context is there for you to, to say... Oh, she's doing one-armed push-ups. But uh, in, a, in a very similar fashion to last week's review of uh, Avengers number one, because you can't see the horizon line or any background elements. Right. It's very, it, it's odd. It looks like she's floating in a void. Yeah. Or just and, laying uh, face down. <laughs> I don't know. Right. <laughs> um, but I, but I thought like, I thought the coloring was beautiful. You know, you know, there, there are good things about it, but overall it just, I didn't care for it. Fair it's enough. a skim it for me as well. <laughs> Moving on to this week for me, my first review from May 19 goes to wonder girl. Number one from DC. Yara floor comes to the present day DCU courtesy of her future state creator, Joel Jones. Jones starts the issue off with a bang with a violent encounter from Yara's past, contrasted against a much more mundane uh, plane ride. As the issue progresses, we start to see Yara's heroic tendency to rush into danger without regard for her own safety. Uh, we also check in with the other corners of Wonder Woman's world and begin to learn of Yara's mysterious and probably dangerous connection to them. Jones has really come a long way as a writer. Uh, though she does have an oddly old-fashioned habit of having Yara narrate her story out loud. Yeah, kind of, right? And, Which and is I, a very old-school thing to do, and it, but it only happens in, like, one scene. And I, and I couldn't tell if it's like, are you doing this because she's, like, a kid? 
Is this supposed to like get across that like she's young, you know, and kids sort of talk like this, right? And I was like, yeah, do they? right, yeah, exactly. You can you can kind of hand wave it away if yeah. you if you if it's, you work it's, at it's it. not. It's like, well, Peter Parker's going to work today. Sure don't yeah, like yeah, my exactly. job. It's Sorry, like, homeless guy, almost stepped on him. You know, like okay, Stan, take it like, easy. <laughs> yeah, like Stan, you did not you did not write this comic before the invention of thought balloons, <laughs> right? <laughs> Visually, Jones and color artist Jordi Belair deliver stunning work, setting Wonder Girl apart as one of the most gorgeously drawn comics on the stands this week. The early flashback scenes are especially memorable thanks to Belair's use of a beautiful uh, monochromatic palette. Even the lettering by Clayton Cowles serves to make each new scene memorable uh, every time they move on to a different, like, Here's Mount Olympus. Here's Themyscira. Here's uh, Bana Migdal, which is where um, the outcast Amazons live, where Artemis is from. Uh, there's like this ornate, gorgeous, like title card. Yeah, really cool. Uh, it's it's oh, it's just like every so every time they switch scenes, it's like whoa, awesome. Yara Floor was one of the standout stars of DC's Future State event, and this issue proves that her time as Wonder Girl. Should be just as memorable. I'm giving this a buy it. I thought it was, I thought it was excellent. Yeah, this is easily the best looking book on the stand this week. It it's is so beautiful. It's amazing beautiful. to look at. Yeah, Yara Floor is a really cool character. There's an incredible last page. And yeah, this creative team. Oh yeah, it was breathtaking, that this, last page. God, this creative team did such a great job on this book. And it's legit interesting. I hope it sticks around. And they don't just decide, ah, screw it. She's not getting the pilot, the TV pilot we hoped for. So whatever. Here's your limited series. Yeah. Bye, Yara Floor. This was excellent. I'm giving it a buy. My final review for this week is Immortal Hulk, Time of Monsters, the one shot from Marvel. It's written by Al Ewing and Alex Packnadel with art by Juan Ferriera. And the second story is written by David Vaughn, Brian K. Vaughn's little brother. Oh, no shit. With okay. art by Kevin Nolan. Now, we make that joke a lot. I am not joking. <laughs> this is actually Brian K. Vaughn's little bro. 10,000 years ago, the leader of a desperate and starving tribe sacrifices his adopted son to the green mother that fell from space with truly horrific consequences. Then, Bruce stumbles into the wrong movie theater only to find Marvel's version of the Scarecrow preying on and feeding off a small-town populace's fears. Now, not all of these Immortal Hulk one-shots have been great, but they've been fun, and it's cool to see other creators getting a shot at the world and the monster that Ewing has created. The first story is creepy as hell, with just amazing painted art by Ferriera who does not mess around when it comes to gore. I really enjoy the idea of this first Hulk storyline, the green door, the idea that this rage thing has always been around is very cool. The second story was fine with some really great art by Kevin Nolan, who just doesn't work enough. I love that guy. That's I do too. That said, while the Scarecrow's plan was creepy, it came off as kind of cheesy after such an intensely violent epic first it's story. It's kind of a throwback, right? The sto that second of. story read more like, like I had to make sure it wasn't a reprint. Yeah, it was a little odd, and it, it did feel very throwback. This was a fun one-shot, but I feel like this probably could have been two backup stories in giant-sized issues of the regular series that is coming to an end with issue 50, and I don't think anyone would complain if, like, the last fuck 
10 issues were all giant size with these backup stories in them. I don't know that they're doing themselves any favors putting these out as one shots because I think it's really easy to skip those. And man, that first storyline is totally worth reading. Yeah, I'm this not sure it. why they're doing it this way. I, yeah, it's odd because each one has like a different title too. It's like the Immortal Hulk. Uh, the well, So the one that uh, Shavley did was called Flatline. And this one's right. called Time of Monsters and stuff like that. Just do these as backup stories in the regular book. Charge well, five and, bucks and that's for just it. Like, like, so the Immortal Hulk, King in Black one shot, that was all about, you know what? That was like, f- fine. It's its, own, it's its own thing. Okay, I get it. Right. Uh, even though I absolutely loved it. Uh, you know, I don't remember a damn thing about the story in, in uh, the Flatline one shot. But this one is so tied to the mythology that Al Ewing has been establishing. Yeah. Al Ewing co-wrote the first story with like, I don't know why this wasn't. This should have probably just been an issue. An issue. Or an annual, right? Or, or but, a two-part backup story in the regular issue. Yeah. And charge five um, bucks which, for the I last mean, five like, issues. Hey, no one's going to blink an eye. If but it's I this mean, good. That's, that's neither here nor there. It's not the, it's not the book's fault, right? No. You know, it's still, uh, it was still a great read. Um, I. I love Juan Ferreira. I love him. man. And this book is so violent and gross and gorgeous. Like, I keep going back. First of all, this design for like Hulk 1, Hulk 1 billion BC or whatever the fuck he is, uh, is... I think it's 10,000 BC. <laughs> it's horrifying. It's, it's, yeah. it's, just, it's, it's just the worst. It's great. I, I, I do have to confess that... Um, you know, you mentioned earlier with the Justice League story about being a continuity wonk. I, I am a recovering continuity wonk as well. I didn't start out loving the idea that the gamma energy was this kind of almost sentient source of evil. Right. And then that's where the Hulk gets his power. And it's not only that, but it's empowered many individuals. Sure. It seems um, like there's been a lot of that going around Marvel recently. Where it's like, oh, there's always been a Ghost Rider, and there's always been an Avengers. Sure, and there's always yeah, been right. A Phoenix. You know, like, it's like <laughs> it's 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 very so, easy. But I would argue Al Ewing sold it so well. Al Ewing sells it. Yes, Al Ewing sells it. And in the hands of a lesser writer, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. I think Jason Aaron's Avengers proves that it's it can not that he's a lesser writer, but it proves that it can be very hard to sell that idea well. Yeah, it's, uh, right. Yeah, exactly. It's like okay. The Avengers 1 billion BC. Right. And like okay. hot cave Phoenix it's just, shows up. It's just you know, Odin. Like, it's yeah. Odin. And there's a Doctor Strange and there's a Ghost Rider and a Black. Come on now. They were all, they, there's an equivalent to all of them. The Phoenix shows up. Then why is the Phoenix there? Right. It does get a little like, all right. We've uh, all- it's, it's too cute, right? It's yeah. too cutesy. But this, uh, it's so compelling. And uh, I think when all is said and done, you know, you asked the question a few weeks ago will this go down as the greatest Hulk run ever? And I don't know if I'm ready to agree yet, but I think that in terms of a complete story from beginning to end, it's going to be really tough to beat the immortal Hulk. I think we have to start talking about it. I'm not saying absolutely, but I think we got to start talking about it, man. It's true. Three issues to go. I got to read like a year's worth of the immortal Hulk to get caught up by the time that last issue comes out. My final review goes to Fantastic Four Life Story number one. 
It is also for Marvel Comics. Writer Mark Russell and artist Sean Isaacs bring their talents to Marvel's new life story format, this time featuring Marvel's first family. Here, Russell updates the status quo of the team members in a more believable way. Uh, Sue is much more than Reed's doting girlfriend. Uh, Johnny blackmails his way onto the ship, which is such a simple way to justify why a child goes up in the rocket. <laughs> I suppose. It's like, like it was such a simple, it was such a simple one sentence explanation. And I thought it was genius. Yeah. And he did a great job with that. But like, did you think it was a little too neat and tidy when they're like, and here's our suits. They've got fours on them. Why? Ah, they just do. Now get in the plane. <laughs> well, uh, but if you look back at it, uh, everybody that was working on the project in the lab had the same suits. They had a four so on it, it? It wasn't just their costumes. It was like. It had, was like a uniform for that project or whatever. With the number four on it? They all had the four on them. Okay. And the, on the wall of the lab of the hangar where they're building the spaceship, there's a giant four. Okay. I missed that. I didn't see that they, lots of people. Were yeah. Wearing. Like, I, it, it's it's so, not explained really in, in any great detail. Oh, because it's Cassandra four. Oh. It's the fourth mission. Okay. Because right. the first three yeah. blew we, up. We just got to that panel and I was like, well, that seems a little. <laughs> I can't. Be- I can't believe I didn't put that together right away. Okay. Yes, now that it's makes because it, it, gotcha. it's Cassandra for um, the fourth iteration of the mission to to be the first humans in space. I'm looking at the book before this, and it doesn't show people in the a bunch of people in They're uniforms. There. There's, a, there's a scene. There is there's a, a scene. Four, in, there's definitely there's a scene a in the lab the where they show other people walking around, and they are wearing the suits. There's definitely a scene with a four on the wall that I'm looking at. Yeah, Ben in this iteration is just simply a pilot that they hire for the mission. At first I was kind of caught off guard by Russell's choice to skew the FF's traditional family dynamic at the beginning. Like Reed and Ben are not friends. They're not best friends. They are, they are not war buddies. They're strangers. Yeah. Reed doesn't even really seem to like Johnny. Honestly. Well, I mean, he, I mean, Johnny has at the beginning, Johnny was always like the annoying kid brother. Yeah. But yeah. And, uh, but it was the, it was the Reed and Ben relationship that really threw me for a loop. But by the end of the issue, you see that this relationship has built over the years, you know, the, like we're talking about life story there, there. It's not like page one, panel one, best friends going to space. It's no, these people were thrown together by circumstance and they've grown as a, as a group. Yeah. There's something to be said for that too. Like they became a family. Yeah. And, and that, and, like, and I think, I think that's something that we, t- we take for granted in a lot of tellings of the FF's origin is that, you know, anytime we find out more about their past lives, it's kind of an afterthought, you right. know, it's done in a, right. And, and I think yeah. it's way more compelling to do it that way too. Like we see like, Ben is legit upset. Should be. He's a monster. Everybody else looks pretty good yeah. and can go to the store and just be them. Ben's a giant rock man. You know, right. that, that's typical. Yeah. And it takes him a few years to come around and be like, it's like he shows up. Seven, and he's like, like it's seven years. It's yeah. 1961 when they go into space. It's 1968 when Franklin's born. And he shows up and he's and like, that's, I heard you that's had when a baby. Ben goes back to them. Yeah. And it's just, a, and it's a real simple scene. And they're like, come in, you know, and like, man, it was great. Yeah. Right. And, and so, yeah, by, so by the time the issue was over, I was like, okay, you know what? I get it. I get it. It makes sense. 
there's a subplot with one of Reed's scientific rivals that refreshingly has nothing to do with Victor Von Doom. Uh, you do. You just know that Vic's coming, though. He's going to show. Oh, up. I doubt they'll go there. <laughs> Yo, no, I don't think nah. I don't think Dr. Doom's going to have anything yeah. to do. I think with they'll this story. stick with the puppet master in this one. <laughs> so <laughs> he's not the puppet master. He's. um, I've seen that device before. And uh, I don't want to get too weird about it, but there was an there oh, was an I was issue just, of, I was completely joking, by the way. Is there something is there a reference to the puppet master in this? No, no, no. He's not the puppet master. No, um, I know that guy's not. I'm just right, saying, no. was there a uh, reference? So, uh, again, I don't want to spoil things too much, but uh, the, the guy, he's got a device, right? Oh, don't, this don't device. do this. Don't tell him this. Okay. Don't tell him. This. I, just, I'm just saying I'm not going to say what he does with it. I'm just going to say that I've seen that device in another comic. Yeah. Russell smartly ties the FF's fateful flight with a future threat. Again, I will not spoil it, uh, but it's in a way that is coincidentally very similar to last week's Heroes Reborn Fantastic Four number one, which made me chuckle. Okay. Now, that, that book barely scratches the surface. It's only the barest of hints uh, in that issue, but if you are a fan of the Fantastic Four and you read that issue, you would be like, oh, I get it. Sure. Russell's take on the FF's history is a smart update to their original Cold War beginnings. Sean Isaacs absolutely kills it on the art in this issue. He brings a ton of personality to the characters and a clean, dynamic style to the cosmic action. Once again, the cover by Daniel Acuna and book designed by Carlos Lau makes this issue leap from the stands. It's gorgeous looking. Fantastic Four Life Story number one is a compelling take on what could have been for the lives of the FF and an excellent addition to what is proving to be one of Marvel's most interesting recent concepts. I, I kind of hope they keep it going with this life story stuff because I really like it. I don't see why I'm they giving won't. this a buy it. I have a feeling these are selling well. So yeah, we're going to get more. Until, knowing Marvel, we're going to get every life story, whether you want it or not. And they're going to start to get really shitty soon. This one is very good. Um, Isaacs, man, he had like a Dale Eaglesham kind of thing going on almost. Yeah, that kind of, I sort of, really, kind of, sort of, yeah. really liked. It's just clean. It's cartoony. It looks good. And I think Russell was so gentle with what he did to change the origin. And then there's like one major thing that he does where the Fantastic Four and the Marvel comics are always just like, we're explorers, we explore. First and foremost, we go out and explore. Get out there. What's that? Go with, go through the hole. Let's see what's in there. It's something terrible. Get out of the hole, you know? Whereas this Fantastic Four is like, something happened. It scared us and we should leave it alone. And if we don't, it could be really, really, really bad. Oh, but you know? even, even, even more is that Everybody he tells in charge thinks he's crazy. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not even going to go that far because I don't want to spoil anything, but just in the sense that, like, they are the anti-exploring team in this sure. one. Sure. Which yeah, was, a, yeah, yeah. it's such a cool choice because of what it looks like they're going to be dealing with later on. I loved this. I think Mark Russell is one of the most intelligent writers working in comics right now that doesn't force it down anyone's throat. He's gentle. He's good at what he does. He just tells a compelling story and he writes Reed so well. I think it's really easy to be like Reed saying smart things. Reed is not human at all. He does a really good job of like making him brilliant and humanizing him and making him seem like somebody that I don't know, Sue Storm might want to make out with as opposed to the complete sure. jackass 
jerk <laughs> he's been in so many other Fantastic Four comics. It made me went, right. why is she married to this guy? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, but I also like, I still like the, uh, you know, he's still a genius. Right. He still kind of has a one-track mind when it comes to the science stuff. Absolutely. Um, but also, there's a really fun scene where uh, Johnny gets on his nerves and he's like, how old are you supposed to be again? Yeah, it's great. You, you know, know like, it's, so it's like, like, yes, he's still Reed, but he's also human, you know? Right. And uh, yeah, this is super great. Really great. Johnny! Oh, no! The water's put his flames out! Hold on to my legs, Ben. I'm going after Johnny. So which book wins, Joe? Which funny book goes into the THN permanent collection this week? You know what? It was a toss-up for me between Fantastic Four and Wonder Girl, but I'm giving it to Wonder Girl. I because am. I am, too. I I was just so impressed. Yeah, uh, I was so impressed and and so blown away by the art, and um, and to see Joelle Jones's kind of uh, growth as a writer has been really good. Because I remember, I remember when she first took over, uh, she took over Catwoman, and we weren't super thrilled by the writing. Yeah, we were like the art is great, the the weird armpit cutouts are weird, but the writing wasn't. St- super strong. Armpits this, I thought, was man. my just, armpits. I mean, like, I thought about cutting you know, the sleeves out of this shirt. Honestly, you know. Yeah, no, I was just, I was just so impressed with Wonder Girl uh, that it's definitely going in the long box. Yeah, same here. Just Joelle Jones is. We used to give it an award out for most improved. That's not to say that she was ever bad, but she has gotten so goddamn good at what she does. And this creative team, the look of this book, we don't need to go back into the whole thing because we raved about it already. God damn, this book was the best looking book on the stands this week. Just beautiful. Well, and you know, that's just it is that like artists get their start and then they want to venture out into writing and, you know, they have to learn. They learn, they get better, they hone their craft. And I think she's doing the work. Right. Absolutely. And Or, just, or like, you get early 90s image comics. One. <laughs> awesome. You can find our complete review list every Wednesday on our Twitter and Facebook if you want to read along with us and let us know what you thought about these comics or anything that you read on THN Cover to Cover this Saturday on Facebook Live from 11 a.m. to noon Central Standard Time. Now you would think after reviewing eight comics, we'd have had our fill and we'd want to talk about anything else. But... The cursed hieroglyphs we keep in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum demand we let Conchu know what we plan on reading next week. Joe Patrick, what is your must-read pick for Wednesday, 526? Next week, I am excited for The Blue Flame, number one. It's from Vault Comics. It's written by Christopher Cantwell with art by Adam Gorham and Kurt Michael Russell. That's right. Kurt Russell. <laughs> you know, like if your name is Kurt Russell, you got to go by your middle name. You have to, you know. <laughs> uh, they, 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 uh, I put the parentheses in the wrong spot, but they very uh, clearly made a specific point of listing him as Kurt right. Michael Russell. <laughs> right. Your, Kurt's parents didn't do him any favors, you know. Yeah, it's true. Uh, this book is 32 pages for $3.99. Here's your solicit. The Blue Flame is a cosmic hero. The Blue Flame is a DIY vigilante that fights crime on the streets of Milwaukee. The Blue Flame is a blue-collar HVAC repairman 
named Sam Brow Sam. I think I would just That's like right. it steadily Sam goes Brow downhill. <laughs> In the wake of a horrific tragedy, the boundaries of the Blue Flames identity blur even further now. Before a universal trial, the Blue Flame must prove that humanity is worth saving. But in order to do that, Sam, Brow Sam, has to save himself. Can he? Question mark. I thought, oh, man, kind of slim pickings next week in terms of, like, fun new things. But uh, here we are, a brand new project I had not heard about from Christopher Cantwell, creator of Halt and Catch Fire, current writer of Iron Man, and all around... Great comic book, uh, comic book guy. He's been. Really, we love Christopher Cantwell around here. We love. I love his Doom. His Iron Man. It's not great. It started oh, off. I do. I think. It, I think it, it is started great. really like great, it. and now it's kind of. It's not terrible, but it's Listen, not. It didn't. It's not as good as it that, started. This is. This is that. not the segment for that. Yeah. This is not where we tear down. This is where we build up. But man, uh, the art by Adam Gorham and Kurt Russell. <laughs> Beautiful. This preview art looks kick ass. I didn't know That's Kurt Russell could draw. I, 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 didn't know. I really love Adam Gorham, though. We should just start calling really him Snake Bliskin. Let's do it. <laughs> My pick for next week is Black Panther 25 from Marvel. It's written by Tanisi Coates with illustrator Daniel Acuna. 32 pages for $3.99. And here's your solicit The final issue of Tanisi Coates' landmark run! It's the end of an era for the Black Panther as renowned writer Tanisi Coates concludes its Wakandan epic. Over five years, Coates has taken the Black Panther to hell and back and expanded Wakanda into the distant stars. Now, in his final issue, he brings T'Challa full circle, back to the home he left behind, and the crown he has never fully accepted. This is the story of a king who sought to be a hero. A hero who was reduced to a slave. A slave who advanced into legend. And the man who has struggled to hold up an empire in his bare hands. The journey will conclude, but the legend remains. Don't miss the close of a historic epoch in comic history, including an epilogue drawn by Brian Stelfreeze. Why can't Brian just like draw whole comics? He's so good. Well, he did. <laughs> That's why he's coming back. He I was know, the original artist like, of Tana. I love him so much. Just draw more stuff, man. You're so good. Please. Again, that's not the point of this conversation. I agree. I understand I agree. you're a fan of Brian Stelfreeze. I love him. But uh, Coates' Black Panther has been wonderful. And he has told an entire story. He's ending it at the top of his game, walking away from it to do something else. Whatever it is, I don't care. I just hope it's more Marvel because he's kicking ass over there. Love this run. Love it. The THN trade of the week goes to the Downriver people from Boom Studios. It's written by Adam Smith with art by Matt Fox. It's 208 pages for $19.99. That's more like it. Get out of here with this. Yeah. 80-page hardcover for 20 bucks. I know, right? Here's your solicit. For fans of Stillwater and Essex County comes a new graphic novel reuniting writer Adam Smith and artist Matt Fox, the duo behind the Eisner and Harvey Award-nominated Long Walk to Valhalla, for a riveting story about a man attempting to survive the complicated and dangerous web of his family's criminal ties with his soul intact. Myers Carpenter is a bootlegger who just inherited his family's bar and must turn to his estranged mother, who he hasn't seen since he was a boy, for help. Myers learns the secrets of his new family's lodge, but he may not escape the dark cult thriving just under the surface of opulence. This sounds great. I missed the long walk to Valhalla, and I'm still mad at myself for it. I actually have it on the shelf and just need to fucking read it. 
but I'm not missing this one. These two guys are amazing creators with a ton of buzz behind them. Harvey and, you know, Eisner nominated creators. So pick this up. It looks amazing. This sounds very um, true detective season one yeah, justified. Definitely. You know, it's definitely like dark secret in hillbilly country. Oh, you know, kinda. Yeah. Be sure to pre-order these comics if you're looking for a quality read. And don't forget to pick up the THN book club read from May. Tom Taylor's first creator-owned project, Seven Secrets, Volume 1 from Boom. Available everywhere quality comics are sold. We're going to be reviewing Seven Secrets with our buddy and CEO of Titan Comic Pressing, Mr. Patrick Cavanaugh. We have to call him Mr. because he's important. On the final show this month. Reading comics is a pain, and when the big two start stacking the shelves with crossover events, who has the time to read it all? I feel like we well, should be the nerds. part where one of us, like, and drops our whole stock in comics, <laughs> you know, or something. Well, you're in luck, nerds. That is, if you support THN for as low as a dollar a month on Patreon, anyway. If not, well, we suppose you can have a taste of our latest edition of TLDR, where we sum up, annotate, and even explain the latest crossover event. And this time we're wearing our favorite symbiote suits to break down Marvel's recent Venom event. It's time for a sample of TLDR, the King in Black edition. King in Black is a five issue mini series celebrating the ultimate Venom story that Donnie Cates and Ronnie Stegman have been planning. What I call it, Ronnie? Ryan Stegman have been planning for more than two Donnie years. Donnie and Ronnie. It is written by Donnie Cates with art by Ryan Stegman. It begins with issue one. Now, this story centers around Eddie Brock and Venom's connection to Null, the god of the symbiotes, who technically made his first appear in Thor, God of Thunder, number six, as a weapon back in 2013. <laughs> I mean, not really. Yeah, that's even, that's Cates and Aaron both say, yep. That is what that is. The null blade. Yes. That the, but the null blade is Null's blade. The blade is not null. Wrong. The blade would be broken open and null would be released from it. The God Slayer, what's his mm. head, was carrying it and using him as a weapon. The all black mm. sword, which is an I extension of him. So technically. Oh, yes. Extension of him. Yes. There you go. There you go. It's described, Noel is described as an eldritch god of darkness and the creator of the symbiotes. Now, we've seen him being, we've seen him kicked around quite a bit here, but it was the maximum carnage event when carnage built. Absolute, absolute carnage. Pardon me, absolute carnage event. Maximum carnage is a whole different thing. <laughs> yes. The, in the absolute carnage event before this, carnage created a giant spire in New York that he was using to, create, to control all the symbiotes. And guess what? Somebody else heard him and decided they were, oh, yeah. were going to show up. Null is coming to New York with an army of black symbiote dragons in tow. But Venom and the Avengers are waiting for the god of the abyss to show up. Tony sets up this whole like bunch of bombs in outer space. It's a really cool scene, actually. <laughs> and he's, of course, worried about Null, but mainly because he has a, a son now, Dylan, and he doesn't want Dylan getting involved. We haven't and really Dylan is Dylan is somehow 
tied to Null or to the symbiotes. Well, Dylan like can sort of hear them, like the voices that, that came everybody up, hears. That came up in the previous. Yes. Uh, that came up in Maximum uh, Absolute uh, Carnage. Yes. Dylan could sort of hear the broadcast that Carnage was shooting out. And Eddie got super worried, like, uh-oh, maybe the symbiote's in him or something like that. But we'll learn more about that later. So, yeah. <laughs> by the way. Kate does a really good job writing the Avengers. And if he, they wanted to hand him the Avengers title for a little bit after Jason Aaron's done with this foolishness, I might be totally okay with it. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> it was really good. So Tony detonates his bomb to kill all the symbiote dragons. But of course, no dice. Eddie is taking his son Dylan to a panic room built by Ezekiel for Peter Parker. This was during the JMS run, I'm guessing. I couldn't find anything on this. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess I don't know specifically which panic room I don't recall and I don't remember them actually saying specifically, but, um, Ezekiel did build at least one, maybe two panic rooms, um, because, uh, he was somehow able to hide his existence from Morlan, the spider totem vampire. Right. And he would hide uh, in this nuclear fallout shelter that he built basically but also uh it could have been the panic room uh when silk was introduced uh cindy moon um she had been she was bitten by the same radioactive spider that bit peter just it happened right before it died okay and so um is she ezekiel found her immediately and so she had been living in a panic room for years. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Uh, and that's why she had not been on the scene. So it could have been, it was probably one of those. One of those he, two. He probably had a bunch of panic rooms. Okay. Well, there you go. Spider totem bullshit that we don't like to talk about. The yeah. X-Men show up to back up the Avengers along with some faces I didn't recognize. I dropped a link in here. Who is this man? That is the former West Coast Avenger living lightning. Oh, not the living laser, the living lightning. No, living laser is a villain. Right. Living lightning was an Avenger. Okay. All right. A West Coast Avenger. Because somebody said living lightning or living laser. And I was like, wait a minute. He's a bad guy. That no, no. Living lightning. Living gotcha. Lightning. So Eddie is planning on using the spire that Carnage built in the recent Maximum Carnage event. We just talked about it. Carnage Absolute used carnage. this spire. God, I keep saying Absolute Carnage. Absolute carnage. I can't help it. Maximum carnage has been around for like 30 years now and I can't fight it off. So <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I get it. Carnage used this spire to control his symbiote hordes at the time. Eddie taps into the spire to try and take control of the dragons. Just as Noel shows up riding in the corpse of a giant venomized celestial. He doesn't Yikes. Not just one, but he's got two of them. <laughs> yeah. Cap calls an audible, brings in the big gun. The sentry. But Null takes the sentry, pulls him up into space in a scene very similar to when the sentry killed Carnage uh, years right, ago. In uh, New Avengers number one. Right. Just like tears Carnage in half in outer space and like, get yeah, out of here. It may not have been number one. It may have, uh, but it was in the first arc of Bendis' New Avengers. Right. It was relatively new. Null tears the sentry apart, just like he had torn apart Carnage, releasing the void, sentry's dark sided nemesis. And he then says, oh, yeah, the Void? Uh, not a big deal. I'm the god of the Void, so really doesn't bother me. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Null then blacks out the sky by surrounding the Earth with a symbiote shield, and Eddie decides it's time for a last-ditch effort. Give Null what he wants. Venom, right? That's what he's here for, right? Yeah, obviously. No. 
That's not what he's here for. It turns out Son of a bitch. Noel isn't looking for Venom at all or Eddie. He wants Dylan. He tears wow, Venom he's off one of, of those. Yeah. <laughs> tears Venom off of Eddie, drops him to a certain death. End of issue one. Let me ask you. Are you glad the Sentry's dead? I kind of am. <laughs> Honestly, I, I hope it sticks this I time. Mean- <laughs> I stopped caring about the century a, real, a long time ago. Yeah. And honestly, I can't keep track of whether or not he's dead or alive at, at any given point. So until he came back, I thought he had been killed. I thought he had died a while ago. I but thought I guess, so too. I, I guess not. I don't know. I don't either. And I hope he's dead. I really don't care. In issue two, Eddie is broken. He's laying in a dumpster after the oh, well, fall. Now, I, I know that he's definitely dead because there was the, um, it was the return of the Valkyries king and black tie-in mini where they had to escort the sentry to valhalla yeah jane makes a comment about that in this issue she's like i gotta go i gotta take the sentry to to heaven or whatever so yeah so good sayonara see ya eddie, yeah, is, adios. Bro- <laughs> eddie is broken laying in the dumpster after the fall spidey finds him yells for help and a bunch of nullified heroes show up it's like cap oh. and he's all nulled out and you know and like storm is there all nulled out the human torch shows up goes Nova to give Spidey a chance to escape with Eddie to the FF's lab. And they're like, no torch. You can't do it. You're just going to pass out and they'll take you over afterwards. And he's like, well, you better run fast then kid. We got one shot of this. It's like very heroic. Johnny helping his buddy Pete. I really liked it. Yeah. Uh, but the flame, like we said, it's not going to hurt the nullified heroes. It's just going to slow him down. He does pass out. So gets absorbed off panel. It happens. Jane Foster, currently working as Valkyrie, is in the FF lab when Pete and Eddie shows up. She tells him that Eddie is very near death. She also confirms Sentry is dead, which, again, fine with us. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, I think when we look back the body count on this, the Sentry and Noel are the only two people that are really going to be dead, right? Uh, That sounds about right. Right? (laughs) I just thought about that. Yeah. So Spidey goes to get Dylan. The Black Panther is talking about using Infinity Stones or the Ultimate Nullifier when Namor shows up to the FF lab and Blade is not impressed with Namor at all, basically. <laughs> so Iron Man has a plan, and it's one of my favorite things they do in comics. It's time to recruit the bad guys, because the bad guys are going to have anything like to rule if this goes down like this. Sure, yeah, right? absolutely. Namor is going to release the Black Tide. Do you know about the Black Tide, Joe? The, the Black Tide is his... Um, It's like his group of flunkies or whatever. Well, the Black Tide was originally known as the Swift Tide. They were a team of Atlantean warrior women who had fought to overcome the sexism of Atlantean society and and attained celebrity status across the undersea world for their skill and combat prowess. Not everybody thought that that was cool. So they uh, were sent on a mission to find this, what was it? Unforgotten Stone. And the Unforgotten Stone was forgotten for a reason because it was really bad and it turned them into the black tide and they're like super evil uh, after that i see i see i was confusing them with uh I, i'm looking at the wiki you link to i was confusing them with the defenders of the deep ah which was namor's group of um underwater super villains that he assembled uh when he went to war with the avengers namor's thunderbolts eight, basically eight thousandth time it's sure. got Blade asks Dracula for help, which is really cool. The Kingpin is still mayor, so they contact him. Is Dracula still sexy? Yeah, this looks like old school Dracula. 
If you look at it, if you look at issue two, when he goes to talk to him, it's like, dude, with the hair, like the notable Dracula hair sitting in a throne and stuff. It's not like the new sexy Dracula. It looks like old school Drac, which is cool. All right. All right. As we mentioned, you can hear the full King and Black TLDR segment on patreon.com slash nerd when you become a supporter for as little as $1 per month. There are also some uh, free full shows that you can find there if you need a further sample of the content we put up there. That's how you do it. You give the kids a taste, and then they come yeah, crawling yeah, you back know. for more. You know? We're comic pushers around here, baby. That's right. Excelsior! Oh. That is it for THN 621, and next week we'll be airing our THN Take a Look. It's in a book club review of Seven Secrets, Volume 1, with our friend Patrick Cavanaugh. Normally we would put this up on our Patreon, but it's Joe's wedding anniversary next week where he decided to marry a woman that is not me, and he chooses to celebrate that, and that's fine. I'm done holding it against him, and we're going to give you this little well, taste. Number one, you were already married. Number two, you are not a woman. Oh, like that's ever stopped me before. We're just going to give you a little taste of our Take a Look. It's in a book club, and we're excited to read this one. Seven Secrets. Spoiler alert. It's a blast. If you want to rap about this week's episode or any of our weekly nerdy news we're following, hit us up on our live call-in show, THN, cover to cover, every Saturday at 11 Central Standard Time, hosted on our Facebook page. And don't forget about our question of the week. This week's question comes from Harvey Locust. What is a story or characteristic that was adapted poorly in movies and TV? So this is something from comics that the movies or the TV shows got totally wrong. Also, vice versa. Hit us with things that comics took from movies and TV and did them better. Please continue to hit us with uh, your question of the week suggestions, just like Harvey did and just like Brian Domingos did last week. Uh, We need them for cover to cover. It happens most Saturdays. You can call us at 402-819-4894 or join our Zoom live by clicking on the link in our Facebook video chat. If you can't be there live, shoot an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com or leave a message on the hotline and you could be internet famous. If you are going to submit something via voicemail or MP3, please try to keep it on the shorter side, two minutes or less, uh, so that we can share the air with all the nerds out there. If you're new to this show and you would rather the century takes you up into space and tears you in half than listen to any more, I assure you it's only because you have not heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital longbox archive at TwoHeadedNerd.com, but host that many episodes, it ain't cheap. We want to thank donors like Defenders of the Cause, Chase Van Bolt creator, Darren Neely. For a minute, I thought somebody named Chase Van Bolt had donated to us, and I was like, who is this fucking badass? But turns out, it's Darren Neely, who's a great guy. I'm not taking anything away from him. He I like Darren. Guy, yes. <laughs> Darren's a super sweet guy, right? Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to G. Willow Wilson, who was granted an honorary doctorate this week from Rutgers University. Word to you, Professor W. Uh, word on Twitter is that it was a complete surprise to her. Oh, Nice. So I assume that's how it happened to Dr. Doom, too, because he has an honorary doctorate. So. <laughs> no, he's got a real doctorate. He graduated. Oh, I thought he had an honorary doctorate, but like, glad very established. No, he left college. He dropped oh, out. 
Uh, he has an he honorary. He's got a doctorate from Latveria University. Honorary doctorate, dude. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just out you as an honorary doctor. This is the two-headed nerd signing off. That's right. He's got an honorary doctorate from yes. MIT. He dropped out. No, not from MIT. Latveria gave it to him because he dropped out. He just dropped look, out. Look, look, Matt, if Latveria gave Dr. Doom a doctorate, I assure you, he does not call it honorary. <laughs> he calls it a doctorate. I get it. I'm just saying. Didn't get it from his nerd school that he went through with Reed. You know who did? Dr. Reed Richards. Did it the hard way. Okay. This is nothing against you, Willow Wilson, by the way. Congratulations. <laughs> I mean, it's not like she was trying for it. Right. She, it just happened. <laughs>